This morning we will be sharing from Daniel chapter 11, the first verses of the chapter that Alan just read is our opening part, and I won't reread it, but just to get as an introduction into this chapter, chapter 10, 11, and 12 are one final prophecy being given to Daniel by God's messenger. It starts in chapter 10, go 11 and 12, and the setting is is an angel giving this message to Daniel. The 21st verse of chapter 10 says, this is the messenger speaking, the angel speaking, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael your prince. What he's talking about is spiritual warfare. And the reason why I wanted to recapture that verse was uh, last week we talked about spiritual warfare. We got a kind of a peek under the curtain, so to speak, about what goes on in the spiritual realm. Michael talking about fighting uh, and, and, and the angel speaking about fighting against the prince of Persia which would likely be a demonic leader of some kind or a uh, possibly Satan himself. We're not sure exactly how to translate that, but the idea is that it's a demonic or evil prince. And as we look at that, we realize that there is things going on in the world that are influenced by the, the, the evil, uh, with the fall of Satan and all that goes on with that. And as a result... Uh, we are in spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about it. Uh, talks about putting on the armor of God to stand firm and this type of thing. So, as we look at this, understand that this is what the angel is talking about. And as we go into verse 11, or chapter 11, uh, he says, he says, now I'm going to show you the truth. Uh, there's more kings that are going to arise and, and, and there's four kings that he talks about here. Uh, the kings that are to rule Persia. And the fourth king that is mentioned that's going to be greater than all the other kings happens to be Xerxes by name. It's uh, All four kings are named in, in history. And uh, I'm not going to go into all of it, but it's the reason why I wanted to point out Xerxes, the, the fourth king, he was extremely wealthy. He was extremely powerful. He's the king that married uh, Esther. And so if you uh, reading read in the book of Esther, you'll see that. And uh, he was a mighty king. And, and then uh, as he goes down, so to speak, as he, as he grows old, he gives up his throne. It says that... Uh, uh, he was richer than all of them, and then he says he became strong through his riches. He shall stir up all against a kingdom of Greece. And he went against Greece. And then a mighty king rises up in Greece. Xerxes went after Greece and, 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 and that area, and then Greece rises. Who's the king of, that's so well known? Alexander the Great. And he is into, man, he just moves so fast. And he conquers so much. And so it tells us here very specifically, uh, 
a mighty king shall arise and rule with great dominion and do as he will. Uh, and and they, speaking of Alexander, and as as soon as he's risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided into four. As soon as he's risen, his kingdom is broken. Well, what that means is that something happens to Alexander. Well, Alexander dies very young in his early, his early 30s. And, and as a result, his kingdom is divided among his four main generals. And some people will say, well, didn't he have any heirs? Well, he had uh, a son coming. He had a, a wife. He had uh, a brother. But interestingly enough, as all of this transpired after, right after his death, they were all murdered. And so these generals took over and divided up the kingdom into four parts. Now it's important to just understand there's there's that's these you know the the four parts uh that it's divided into is again historical base. You can go to history books and read about this. And so we come to verses 5 through 20 which are the interesting verses. And as I go through this you might say well you know how do we make application of all of this? And sometimes Scripture isn't so easy to see the application. I will suggest to you the main application of, through what we're reading this morning is to see that God is sovereign. God is in control. God declares what is coming and He doesn't miss a beat in the sense of, of how He identifies it. So that when we read prophecy, and it's interesting, for Daniel, this was all going to be future for us, it's all history almost. In fact, until we get uh, two-thirds of the way through the chapter 11, it then becomes future for us as well. But Daniel is, is looking at this and declaring all of this, and then he, he doesn't get to see it come to pass. But we can look back and see that it consistently, one after another of these prophecies is fulfilled in, in, in history. In verses 5 through 20, I'm not going to read them. It's, it, it's mind-boggling to read them in some ways. You've got to read them slow and maybe take notes as you go along as to who, who's doing what as far as there's two kings talked about. One is the king of the north and the other one's the king of the south. The king of the north, uh, or the king of the south is, is, uh, is, uh, it, it talks about Egypt. That's the king of the south. And Ptolemy, he was a general. He's the king of Egypt in that general district. Okay, And then there's another kingdom, uh, the king of the north, which is Syria. And the king of that, first, the person that's the king there is Seleucius. Now, those names don't, may not mean anything to you, but they're the ones that will be ruling through their families through this 20 ver- these next uh, several verses. What is interesting is that this kingdom of the north and this kingdom of the south were constantly at battle with each other. Over 130 years at least, they were at battle. One would be up at the top and then the next one would be you know, back and forth, back and forth through multiple uh, kings through their family lines. And, and so, they, they constantly battling each other. And in their battles, one against the other, 
Guess who's caught in the middle? Think about the geographics here. Syria, Egypt, Mediterranean, and what do you have right in the middle? Israel. And a number of the battles were fought on Israel's soil. Israel was, was constantly being raided, being torn down, being you know, taken over, back and forth. It was just a tremendously terrible time for the nation of Israel. And, and I, the, the interesting thing was is it wasn't their war. They were just brought into it. Verse 20, again, it talks about a, a short-termer, if you will, uh, as, as the king of the north. And then in his place, uh, in verse 21, it says, a contemptible person. A contemptible person, in verse 21, takes the, the leadership. He comes in without warning. He has quick victories. Verse 23 says he's deceitful. He uses flatteries to influence people. The idea of the word flatteries here is a silver tongue. How many are more familiar with that phrase? You know, the thing is, is that he speaks, and, and, and we might even say forked tongue, because he speaks one thing and, and, and does something else. He's dishonest. Uh, one commentary said he was despicable. <laughs> uh, he was an basically evil man. He had no room for uh, God in his life and certainly was not interested in the Hebrew concept of God. And he decides he is going to take out the uh, nation of, of, the, of the south. And he moves on the, on, the, on the south with a huge, great army. Verse 25, uh, it, it tells us here, And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. Great battle to go on. And he moves on uh, with this, this great, great army. And then he falls and, he, and it collapses. The north, in its moving on the south, verse 29 tells us uh, that they had help. Uh, they called on Rome, or verse 30, and they called on Rome to help. And so, the the commander, uh, I can't recall his name, Popamus, I think it is, but he he arrives in Egypt with all of these ships and a couple of legions of Romans. He marches outside of Alexandria about half a dozen miles and sets up his encampment and his, and his legions ready for battle. And... As he moves out, we find what he's dealing with here is a person we've already talked about before, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means magnificent or great. That was his own tag to his name. And so, he goes out to, to, to meet in this battle. 
And as as they're there getting ready, the commander basically calls a truce. And he comes out himself, the commander of the legions, with a, and, and, and wants to speak to Antiochus before they, you know, see. If, and he says, you are to leave and return to Syria now. And then he hands him a letter from the Senate of Rome that says, Antiochus, who had permission to rule from Rome at this point, he says, you are to return to Syria now. Antiochus is, is furious. He, he's, he's not sure. He says, give me time to consider this. Give me time to think about it. And the commander of the Roman legions draws out his sword. <laughs> and you think, what boy, is he going to attack? And he walks around dragging his sword and he walks around Antiochus and makes a circle in the, in the dirt. And he says, decide before you leave this circle. That was a pretty ominous thing to say. What he was saying is, it's either battle right now or leave. Antiochus was not stupid. He knew that he was going to, no matter what happened here, if he drew his sword, so to speak, he was going to have the wrath of the Roman Senate on him. And this was not going to end here for him. So he wisely thinks about it and, and, and he says, okay, so long. And he turns to go home. Now remember where he is. He's at, at the northern, uh, in northern Egypt, just uh, east of Alexandria, and, and he has to travel back to go to Syria. He's got a huge, huge army to take with him. And so in order to survive, they're going to have to do some pillaging and sacking along the way to take care of this army and feed it. And again, we know who's in between. Israel. Now, Antiochus is really in a rage. History tells us that he was... he he was. His nickname was, instead of magnificent, was Madman. And his, even some of his inside people called him that. And so, in his anger, he leaves and, and, and goes on to, to, to you know, go home, but he's humiliated. And he, and he's, and as, so as he goes, as he pillages various villages and stuff like that to his feet, is, he destroys things. He just ravages the countryside in anger. And he gets to Jerusalem, and he really takes out his anger. He goes to the temple, and he runs the priests out. In fact, Quite candidly, he killed a number of priests. Uh, just went in with his with his men and their swords drawn, and and the priests took off. They had to leave, and and many of them running for their lives, literally. And as they 
as he went into the, into the temple, he takes with him a statue of Zeus. And he erects it in the inner walls of the temple, which is the holy place, and declares that this is the God that everybody is to worship. Not only that, but he sacrifices a pig in the Hebrew temple. Now, if you understand the, the Hebrew culture, and you can go back to Exodus and Leviticus both and read about this, pork is denied them. It's considered a, a, a food that is out, off limits, so to speak. It's, it's something that if they touch it, they are... Uh, have to be cleansed before they can fellowship again. And so you don't find any Hebrew people raising pigs. By the way, there's a story of a Jewish young man who leaves his home and he ends up in a pig farm. That shows how low he had gotten. And, and here he was fighting with the pigs for food, it says. <laughs> but, but that, that he, it made him unclean. And, and so, the temple now is desecrated. This pig has been sacrificed. Not only did he sacrifice the pig, killing it there, but in bleeding it out, he took the blood and splattered it all over the temple, making the whole place unclean. The priest left it. That's, by the way, they left it, and the term is desolate. And so we call the, the, you know, the abomination of desolation. <laughs> you know, and this was the first abomination of desolation, by the way. There's, there's a, a couple more that are, happen, and, and one that happens in the future for, for us even that we will see uh, if, if we live through it or in history there's still one, yet one to come. And so he, he does this, he sacrifices the pig, desecrates the temple, and uh, it's deserted by the priest. And then he round, round, uh, rounded up thousands and thousands of Hebrew people in the Judea, Judea area and murdered them. It's assumed, estimated around 80,000 Jews died. So he, he devastated. He, he, he just... Ruthless man. Now, it's believed by most scholars that this man is a shadow of the one who will desecrate the temple in the future. He's a shadow of him who's to come, the Antichrist. Now, some look back and say they thought he was the Antichrist. He, he's even called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. But, but he is a shadow of the Antichrist that will come in end times. And all of this that is detailed out here came to pass. Now, once you get to verse 36 of chapter 11, and I'm not going to go into this this morning, it's not only going to be future for Daniel, but it's future for us too. Because it is going to talk about 
the Antichrist of end times. We'll be looking at that in more detail next Sunday. So this morning, I want you. What I want you to get from this more than anything else is the as you go through this and you say, "What's the point?" You know, and it's kind of like going through the uh, lineages of the Old Testament. It says, Paul says, every word in Scripture is important. That it's used to build up and to strengthen our walk with the Lord. What you see here is the wickedness uncorralled and what it does. And God is, you know, God is basically in His sovereignty allows certain things to happen to bring about His purpose. And man, sometimes we sit here and scratch our heads and wonder, why does God allow? And all I can say, and you've heard me say this before, is it's like a tapestry. And we're looking at the tapestry from the back side. I don't know how many of you have ever looked at a, at a hand-woven tapestry from the back side where it's done, especially if it's done with silk thread. Uh, because the thread is just so small and, and, and hundreds and thousands of little ties where the threads are tied off behind it on the back of the tapestry. You turn the tapestry around, you see this amazing picture. I, I think of one, Kathy recalls, that I'm sure uh, that her, her grandparents had from China that was silk and life-size of a woman with one of those yokes with the bucket on either end uh, from the in the fields, and it was all on black silk, all hand woven, and all tied off in the back. You see it from the back. There's nothing to picture. And I look at when we're looking at God's this tapestry, this thing that God has done. He sees it from the front. He sees it completed. Where we are, we see this myopic view of one little part of the back. And we haven't got a clue as to what God is doing overall. We get his, we get pictures from, from his word and we can see he's in control. In his sovereignty, he's got control. And so we learn to trust God in his sovereignty. And that's what comes out of this. This is where Daniel would be in this as well. He's saying, this vision is given to me of God. I trust it as I write it out and that this is what God is going to do. And history speaks, it is what happened. That amazes me. I have, I, I have my whole life been absolutely amazed at how detailed some of the prophecies are and how they were fulfilled exactly. There's a prophecy in Zechariah that talks about Jesus riding into the temple on a donkey, a colt of a donkey. And what happens? The disciples go out to get the, the ride and they, they go up and, and, and find this guy that has a donkey and a colt and he takes the colt and they bring it to Jesus and he rides into Jerusalem and it's word for word almost out of, out of the Scriptures in the Old Testament. We can rest with confidence that God is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do. One of the things that He has said He will do is He says, I will 
bring into a personal relationship with me and eternal life as a gift for all who confess me with the mouth and believe in the heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God raised from the dead. He promises. And we can rest with absolute confidence in that promise. Every time we take communion, we say, Lord, we're declaring faith in Your promise. That's why Paul uh, makes it clear that the communion is something for believers uh, you know, to share together because it takes a believer to understand what's going on within the framework of, of communion. Someone who is resting in Christ and, and has accepted Him as Savior, we recognize what has God done? God has given us His Son on the cross that whosoever will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, will be saved. And that's a promise. And so communion, we celebrate that. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And, and so we share the bread together. And the bread is the flesh, of, uh, is, is a representation of the flesh of Christ. The, it's, it's the idea that Jesus, not just the cross where He hung on the, in the flesh on the cross, but that He came, it says in Philippians, He emptied Himself and became flesh. So the bread is the significance of Jesus from birth to, to death on the cross. And then it says that on the cross, He poured out His blood. In the Old Testament and in the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, it makes it very clear. Life is in the blood. And in order for a death to be declared, the blood is shed. And Jesus, when He shared it with the community, He said, this is My blood poured out for you. So as we share these emblems, we share the whole history that goes with this. It's not just a moment, but it's all that led up to the cross and all that comes after the cross because He says He's going to share this when He comes again for us in the, new, in the kingdom of God. And so, it's, it's a powerful picture. It's the Old Testament and New Testament combined and, he, and, and taking us right to the cross. I'd ask the worship team to come up and while they're singing... Uh, we're going to ask you to uh, come up and pick up your communion. We're still not, because of the COVID and all, we still are not passing the trays. And so on this side is the, is the, the juice and the bread in two cups put together. And you can choose that. Or there's also a packet on the other side here, if you would prefer. And it's just to lift the paper off on the top and there's a, a wafer and then lift the next level off and there's the, the cup. Uh, so... Uh, come up and pick up your communion while we're singing. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Dreams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. 
Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus, when a stranger wine from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter by my wandering heart to lead. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. In the book of Matthew, Jesus Matthew records Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper and uh, this is how he records it. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. Let's share the bread together. continues. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, true, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us share. Father, again we come to You thanking You, praising You, knowing with all confidence You alone are worthy of our praise, Creator, Savior. Oh, Lord, thank You so much for Your love that You have poured out for us. The grace You've lavished over us. Your Word that informs us and draws us into Your presence and close to You. Oh, Father, we just worship You and praise You and thank You. We ask, Lord, that You would go with us through this day and cause us, Lord, to to look around us and be amazed at how awesome what You have created is. And Lord, thinking and in a sense dreaming of what it's going to be when it's fully restored. We love You. We worship You. We ask that You would go with us. Cause us to be the testimony You want us to be where You put us. In Jesus' name, Amen.
Would you stand as we sing our closing song? Marching as to war With the cross of Jesus Going on before Christ the royal master Leads against the foe Forward into battle See his banner go a mighty army booth the church of God brothers we are treading where the saints have trod we are not divided all one body we one in hope and doctrine one in Charity, onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never gain such church prevail. We have Christ's own promise and that cannot fail. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. What the saints establish, that I hold for true. What the saints Long as earth endureth, men of faith will hold. Kingdoms, nations, empires, and destruction roll. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus, going on before. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here. I believe your children are already at the park. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, even if you're not going to the picnic, you still will have to pick them up there. Uh, uh, well, now I, I've checked that. Just a second. Are you guys not taking them to the park Were you guys going to take them?